can I just admit that like a life goal is to make it to Rome? I want to visit Rome someday. The very letter that we're studying right now was written to some of the first Christians to ever inhabit that city. I want to be there. You ever uh, done a Build-A-Bear? Anybody? Oh, a lot of you have done a Build-A-Bear. That's amazing. Now, Build-A-Bear actually uh, started back in 1987, became an international uh, bestseller. They started opening up chains of Build-A-Bear workshop stores all over the nation. In fact, they even have some international Back in 2017, Build-A-Bear grossed, thanks to all y'all that raised your hands, $350 million in revenue. Their slogan, up until just recently, was, where best friends are made. Wouldn't it be awesome to design your best friend, right? All the things you like, none of the things you don't like, right? It'd be so awesome. Uh, I think I do this with God sometimes. You're like, dang, that turned. But I think it's true for a lot of us, isn't it? Uh, we we want to build a God, one that is palatable to us, one that uh, we like what they do, and they don't do the things that we don't like, and we kind of get to decide how they're going to respond and react and what they're going to talk about and what they're going to say is good and what's not good, and it's nice when we get to do that, but building your own God never goes well for anyone. Uh, Voltaire was an Enlightenment French philosopher. No, I've never read any of his stuff, but uh, I have read one of his quotes, and it's a really good quote, and I want to share it with you. He said this, In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So true. Uh, One of Voltaire's uh, friends was another philosopher named de Montaigne, and de Montaigne said this, O senseless man, who cannot possibly make a worm or a flea, and yet will create gods by the dozen." I think I do this myself. Uh, But today, my goal is not to try to tame God or recreate him in the way that I would like him to be. My goal is to try to present him through his word as honestly as I can. Because if we believe that God is actually what he reveals himself to be, good, loving, trustworthy, Even the difficult things that he says are still, therefore, then, in our best interest. Still, actually, for our good and not for our harm, still trustworthy. Now, uh, today's text, though, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be a tough one to hear. And I'm sorry for that. I'm not sorry that God said it. I'm not apologizing on behalf of God, because if God is who he said he was, then everything that he has shared with us is actually for our benefit, not to harm us, but so that we would experience life and full life and flourishing life. I'm apologizing because you and I live in a culture that very often finds itself very much at odds with what God's word says. 
And that makes us second guess if God is actually good, if God is actually for my benefit, if God actually loves me and cares about me. What if God says something that I don't like? What if God says something that offends me? And that, I believe, will happen today. And so we start off simply by asking the question, can we trust in faith that God actually is good and God actually is love? And what God says is ultimately, even when I can't see it right now, for my flourishing. You see, if we're willing to believe that God is who he says he is, then we actually have the opportunity to experience a rescue, a redemption, a restoration, unlike anything that anyone else can promise us. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 18. Uh, We kicked off our Roman series last week with Dr. Gary Burge. Gary crushed it. Oh my goodness, it was so good. He basically gave us an overview of what Paul is trying to accomplish in the book of Romans, as well as started us off in chapter 1, verse 1, through kind of uh, verses 16 and 17, which really are the the key verses for the entire book of Romans. And it was kind of a... um, A hard message in some ways to hear because Gary reminded us that what Paul is doing is explaining the catastrophe that is humanity. But of course, Paul is also giving us the hope that is found in Christ. In fact, that's what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the, and at this point, all the Romans were expecting to hear something like, the most beautiful, intellectually stimulating argument for Instead, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, for it is the power of God, the dynamite of God that actually brings salvation to everyone who believes. And he goes on and says, uh, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in this good news, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He lays this out, and that's like hope, good news right there. And then in what I get to teach you today, Paul reverses. Read with me verse 18. The wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, creation, so that people are without excuse. So that people are without excuse. There's two things that I think is really important that I want to talk about in this first little chunk, 18 through 20. The first thing is wrath. The wrath of God. Now, uh, when you hear the word wrath, what comes to your mind. When, when I say that, what do you think about? I know for me, I generally think of a dude who's angry, emotional, flies off the handle in a rage. I don't know what you think about, but that's what comes to my mind because we don't use the word wrath a whole lot. Whenever we do, it's usually kind of associated with like an emotional outburst of anger and 
But that's not what wrath is in the Bible. Uh, Wrath is simply the uh, the necessary response of a holy God to sin. It's the appropriate response of a holy God to sin. Uh, Sin has to be dealt with. God can't allow sin to happen unchecked. Uh, The reason is because sin hurts people. Sometimes when I sin, my sin hurts me. Sometimes when I sin, my sin hurts others. Sin is never neutral. Sin is always damaging. And so God, because he's holy, can't just allow sin to go unchecked, unpunished, undealt with. And maybe when we hear the word wrath, we're like, ah, I, just, I still don't like it, though. I don't want to think of God like that. But the truth is, is that that's actually one of the most loving things God can do. He can't allow sin to go on destroying people. It has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for. And you actually believe this. Some of you are like, no, I don't, dude. I think almost every single person in this room actually believes it. Let me try to illustrate why I think this. Let's pretend that you're a father living in Southeast Asia or a mother living in Southeast Asia, and your 10-year-old daughter doesn't come home from school that day. And you don't know where she is or what happened to her, and the police are of no help. And it's not until years later that you find out that she was abducted by some men and was sold into slavery. A, A bad kind of, not that there's a good kind, but a really bad kind, and was abused for years until she was finally rescued by an organization called International Justice Mission. I heard the story of this girl by the founder of IJM. His name is Gary Haugen. And I thought to myself, if I'm her parents... I know God's asked me to love the men that did that to her. But you had better believe that there is something inside of me and hopefully inside of you right now that is rising up a sense of truth and rightness and holiness that was violated that you know has to be paid for. I might somehow over years be able to figure out how to forgive them but I still believe that they ought to pay. I would not be okay if those men simply moved in next door and became my neighbors and everything was cool. Wrath is what is needed because of sin. It's the necessary reaction of a holy God to sin. And what Paul is saying is that wrath is being revealed. And Paul's going to go on to say that nobody gets out of it. Wrath is not a bad thing. Wrath is a necessary thing. Do we love talking about it? No. You know why we don't like talking about it? Because we all deserve it. Continue looking down, though. He goes on to say that since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Uh, What Paul's talking about here is uh, what theologians call general revelation. It just means that when we look around in the world, 
we can see enough evidence that there must be a God, okay? What Paul is trying to say here is that there's enough revealed about God in creation that to deny his existence is without excuse. Now, do people still deny his existence? Of course, absolutely. I guarantee you probably know somebody who considers himself an atheist, doesn't believe that there is a God. In fact, you may be here today. First of all, if you are, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad that you're willing to give TLC a shot and see if this God that we talk about, that I say I believe in, is actually real. Is there real power there? That's a fair question, a good question to ask. But there are folks that will deny the existence of God in spite of all that we see around us. Is it possible that this world is just a random accident? Yes. Yes, it is possible. I just think it takes a heck of a lot more faith to actually believe that all of you accidentally happened rather than the faith that it takes to believe that there might actually be a designer who intended for this to happen, who gives us that sense of awe every time that we see a sunrise or a sunset or the Grand Canyon or stand before the ocean and feel so small. I think it takes a lot less faith to believe that there must be a God who has designed and created this than it is to believe that there is no God. That's just me personally. But what Paul says is that everybody has enough evidence to at least convict us. Everybody ought to know whether we decide we're going to believe that a God exists or not. He says that we are all without excuse. Now, what about, though, the person who never hears about Jesus? If everybody deserves wrath and nobody is without excuse... What about the person that never had the chance to hear? There are people living right now in North Korea that may never have an opportunity for you or I to share the good news of Jesus. People living in Afghanistan. People living in some jungles in South America where they have limited to no contact with the outside world. What about them? That's a good question. That's a fair question. Uh, Dr. Douglas Moo uh, was actually one of my profs when I was in seminary. He and Gary are actually friends. They taught together at Wheaton uh, for a number of years. And, and uh, Doug is uh, one of the foremost scholars in Romans. In fact, he's written not one, but two of the top Romans commentaries. He didn't become a Christian until later in life. He was uh, near the end of his years in college. And he said the reason that he almost didn't become a Christian was because of this very question. What about people that don't have the opportunity to hear? What about them? And he said when he asked the question to some of these Christians who were talking to him about Jesus before he gave his life to Jesus, he said they didn't ever have an answer that felt great to him. In fact, uh, Moo says this in his commentary on Romans. He says, we must allow that God may have other ways of revealing his gospel to people that we do not know or even understand. So while insisting that only faith in the gospel can save, perhaps we need to open or be open to different ways by which people may come to know the gospel. Now look at this though. He says, I must confess though that I am really not much closer to a compelling answer to my question about those who have not heard than I was when I first became a follower of Christ. I think scripture requires that we insist on faith in Christ as the necessary means of salvation. And I trust utterly in the absolute fairness 
of the God who has revealed himself to me in Jesus Christ. I am content to leave my questions in his hands and hope for clearer resolution in heaven. If you have some doubts, some struggles, if there's some questions that are not answered for you, know that you're in good company. Because Dr. Moo is not just an intellectual scholar. Dr. Moo is also a faithful follower of Jesus who has met this risen Christ and has learned what he has like and even after years of following him still says, I don't know. But I trust that this God that I have come to love is good and fair And even though I can't answer all the questions, I will put those questions in his hands until the day that I get to meet him face to face and he can answer them all for me. Let's continue reading. Look, if you thought it was tough what we just did, whoo, baby, hang on, because this is about to get a lot harder. Verse 21. For although they knew God, Paul says, and the they there, that's really important. Uh, Paul is speaking right now in third person. When we get to chapter two, he's going to start speaking in second person. This is Important to understand, I will explain it in a little bit. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, and that's a key word, exchanged, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. This is build a God, what he's talking about right here. He says, instead of worshiping, God, as he is, they decided that it would be better if they could build their own God, create their own gods, gods that look like men and women, gods that look like birds and reptiles. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This word, God gave them over, this little phrase there, Paul is basically saying that God allows the consequences of our actions to take over. In fact, as we're reading this, instead of saying they, this would be good for us to say uh, us, we. And I'll explain why Paul's talking about you and I here. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged... Again, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. They exchange, we exchange, God gives us over. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's three different times that in this section, Paul says they exchanged something and then God gave them over. Now, one of the things that's important for us to understand here is Paul is building an argument, okay? Paul is building an argument and in this particular part of the argument, he's using an illustration. Now, the reason I said it's important that you understand he's using this third-person language right now, and then in chapter 2 he's going to start using second-person language, is because at this point in the letter, Paul is addressing specifically Jewish Christians. So that's why Paul is saying they, because he's talking about Gentiles. Gentile is just a fancy word for anybody who's not a Jew, okay? So if you are Jewish, 
Paul isn't addressing you right here. Most of you are probably Gentiles like me. And Paul is addressing us. All right? And what Paul is doing is he's setting up an argument that all of the Jewish Christians in Rome would have been like, dude, right on. Like, he totally knew where, they totally knew where Paul was going. Paul talks about how we uh, stop worshiping true God and then God gives us over. We start worshiping idols instead. That leads to sexual sin. Goes all the way on to this illustration of, at the end, homosexuality that Paul talks about. This is actually a really well-known logical argument that was used within Jewish circles at the time. In fact, we think Paul is probably pulling directly from a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. If he's not pulling directly from that book, which was written a couple hundred years earlier and was really well-known, he at least is using the same language because it was so well-known within Judaism, especially with Jewish Christians. Gentiles deserve God's wrath. Look at them. Look at how messed up they are. They've gone away from God. They're worshiping idols. They give in to all the sexual desires and sins that they have. Paul doesn't leave it there, though. This is actually one part of his. A lot of times people will uh, preach this and, and basically say that homosexuality is like the worst thing that you can do. It's not actually the point Paul's making. He's just showing that it's the most, uh, it leads towards something that is unnatural outside of the created order, which Jews absolutely would have understood the connection back to Genesis. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul goes on. Look what Paul continues to say. He says, furthermore, verse 28, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so again, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. And now look at the list that Paul gives. Evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents, which is kind of hilarious that that's stuck in right there, but it, it is. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul wants you and I to see ourselves here. When I look at this list, evil, that's me. Greed, dang it, that's me. Depravity, oh, that's you. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. I've never killed anybody, but I've certainly wished it. Gossips, me. Slanderers, me. God-haters, I hope not, but I bet I, there have been times. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, me, me, me. Disobeying parents, definitely me. And then he actually puts at the bottom of the list the thing that he's throwing out as some of the worst they have no fidelity, no loyalty to God and each other. They have no love, no mercy. What Paul is trying to get us to see is that we're all in this. Now this, though, is a carefully crafted argument that Paul's making. Paul's been preaching the gospel for like 22 years, approximately, at this time. He knows exactly how his argument is going to land on the hearers. He's actually setting up 
the Jewish Christians. Because at this point in the argument, they're listening and everything that Paul is saying, they're totally agreeing with. Nothing he's saying surprises them one bit. They've heard it before. They totally buy into it. See, you and I, we hear this and it offends us because our culture is so different. The idea that homosexuality would be against God's created order, we're like, that's offensive to me because our culture says that it's not. But for the Jews that were following Jesus in Rome at the time, everything that Paul said, that was, it was not surprising at all. They're totally down. They're like, yeah, absolutely. Tell them, Paul. Tell them they deserve wrath. Come on, bring it. And then Paul flips the script. You see, the thing that's not offensive to us that Paul is about to say is that, well, religious people, you're some of the worst. You're some, and we're like, well, yeah, okay, that, that's obvious to us. But for them, that was like a shock, man. That was like, oh, are you kidding me? They, Paul totally set them up. And so now Paul goes on. And uh, I don't have time to get into his entire argument, so I'm just going to read us a, two short passages, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what he says. See how he flips from they to you? You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Yo, you're judging them, but you're doing the exact same thing. Everything you just listed, that's you too, Jews, religious people. You do the same stuff. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? You see, the Jewish Christians at this time actually thought because they had the law, because they were God's chosen, they were going to escape God's wrath, God's judgment. And Paul's like, no, you're no different. You're no better. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The reason that God is so kind and so patient and so slow to bring his wrath is because his kindness is intended to lead us to repentance so that we can see and say, God, I'm sorry. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Flip over now to chapter 3, verse 9. This is Paul's conclusion. He's just spent all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 talking about why the Jews are just as bad off as the Gentiles, why we're all in the same boat. And he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage as Jews? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Everybody's infected, he says. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, where you come from. If you grew up in a Christian home or a non-Christian home, if you grew up going to church or never going to church, if you've done that sin, that sin, that sin, or that sin, it doesn't matter. We're all infected. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, and there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. Oh my goodness, friends. What Paul is saying is, I deserve wrath. And you deserve wrath. Every single one of us. Uh, do you remember last week when Dr. Burge was uh, 
teaching us kind of how Paul wrote this letter, this essay. He talked about uh, a movie, a book, Lord of the Flies. Any of you guys actually watch it this past week after he talked about it? Okay, there was one person in the first service, and I kind of nerded out on it a little bit myself, okay? I didn't see the whole thing, but I did watch clips from the 1960 version, uh, which is black and white, and then uh, there is a uh, 1990 version, uh, which is awful, but definitely watch the 60s. But um, so interesting to see how this little island of boys with no authority figure turns out. When everything is stripped away, will they wind up coming into their goodness, right? Their natural righteousness. Or will they degrade down into the lowest common denominator of sin? Which idea is right? You see, that's still a a fighting philosophy to us today. There are some people that will say we are basically good. It's only by being in the world that we get messed up. And then you have the Bible that says we're basically bad, that we're born with original sin. And it just continues to manifest itself. And what Lord of the Flies is showing is that when you strip off all the things that should allow our goodness to just flourish and come to the top, instead the exact opposite happens. And so you've got these two central characters in the movie. Remember he told us? Ralph and Jack. And if there's any Jacks here, I just apologize for what he said last week. Your name is fine. It's okay. But Jack's the bad guy. In fact, Jack is the first one to throw off his clothes, right? He's the one that when they all show up at the island, they're, they're in their school uniforms, proper and right. And Jack's the first one to be like, this is stupid. I'm getting rid of this. And Jack's the first one to start smearing uh, mud and pig's blood on his body, almost in war paint. Jack's the first one to actually kill a pig. Ralph, though, is the only one at the end of the movie, who still has not put the pig's blood on his body. He's still hoping that he can form some order. But Jack has actually rallied all the rest of the boys who are now all dirty in pig's blood, and they've got their spears, and they're looking for Ralph to kill him. And they actually set the whole island on fire. Literally, the island is burning down around them because they're trying to smoke Ralph out from his hiding place. And finally, Ralph has to start running, and Jack and all the rest of the boys, with their spears and their pig's blood, are just shouting and running, and Ralph is scared to death. He's moments from being impaled with the spear. He runs out onto the beach with the island burning behind him, and he falls down. And we're left asking the question, that Paul has left us with here in chapter 3, is there anybody who can intervene? Who's going to stop this madness? There is no solution from down below. There's no one in the island that's going to rescue them. And it's in that place that Paul brings us today where we're left saying, is there any hope? Can anyone Help us. And that's where I'm going to end you today. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, there is, there's good news, friends. 
There is, because it's at that moment when Jack falls down just before, excuse me, when Ralph falls down just before Jack impales him with the spear, that you see someone from the outside, in this case, a naval officer with white shoes and white pants and a white jacket, standing there. And instantly, the savages turn back into boys. In the movie, Ralph starts to cry because he's been rescued. But what's interesting is so does Jack and all the rest of the boys because they finally realize with an authority from outside, they don't have to be what they've become. This is what Paul shares with us in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets is just shorthand for the Old Testament. He's like, the Old Testament has been talking about this, been sharing about this. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Friends, I can't make you believe. God won't even make you believe. But I want you to know that no matter where you've been, where you've come from, what you've done, what you love, what you hate. Salvation will never be found here. That's what Paul is describing. It doesn't matter what nationality, what religion you've grown up in. No one can be good enough to save themselves. We need rescue from above. And Jesus comes to offer that for any who will believe. Will you be outcast in this culture? Yes. This culture will never accept you, nor will any other culture anywhere else in the world. No culture will accept you perfectly if you believe in Christ. I'm not telling you it will be easier, but I'm telling you it will be better because if God is God, then he knows what you need. And he is for you and you're flourishing. This is the rescue. If you're willing to believe. Let's pray. God, this is a hard one to teach. Not, not because of what you say, God. Sometimes it is just because of our, our culture just says that, I don't know, we, we want to believe what we want to believe. We want to build our own gods. But God, we know that there is no rescue there. And God, as weird as it might sound for me to say this, uh, I'm grateful for your wrath. Because God's sin is destroying us. It's destroying my life. My own sin is destroying the lives of others. And, and, and God, I want it taken care of. And so I'm grateful. But I am more grateful that you were willing to give Jesus to die on the cross so that he could receive all the wrath that I deserve. He could pay the penalty that I ought to pay. He died the death that I deserve to die. And because I have believed in him, you have given me life. And God, I want that for each and every single person here. So God, today, we will say we trust you. And we will not try to tame you. We can't anyway. We will allow you to be what you are, 
because we can't change you anyway, and we will ask for you to change us. Thank you for the rescue you have provided when it looked as if there was no hope. Then you sent Jesus. Jesus, thanks for coming, and Spirit, thanks for being here right now to help us know and learn and love you. It's in your name, Jesus. We pray all these things. Amen.